It's been over a year now since In The Key Of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap Unaware of my proclivities to self-sabotage to country soul and rock. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. This is Dan here. Thanks for downloading this episode. Many thanks to our listeners who are financially supporting the podcast over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. You are genuinely helping to keep the series in production and more importantly, to give a space for queer voices to be heard. My guest offers his thoughts on how toxic indoctrination from religious ideologies has led him into dark mental health corners and the unique intersectionality between his queer and black identities. And if this intersectionality is of interest, please check out our two black queer identity specials featuring the ism, Ty McKinney, Samson McCormick, and guests presented by my guest from today's episode. The two-hour special is available now across two episodes on this feed. Share your thoughts about today's episode, the pods on social media using the hashtag queer music, or email me direct on podcast at inthekeyofq.com. And if you've a moment, please do subscribe, rate, and review the show on your usual podcast provider. All that's left for me to say is enjoy the episode. It's not a crime to not understand, but, um, you know, when that knowledge is presented to you, and you still refuse to grow from it, then we, we have an issue. Hello, I'm Dan Hall, and I love popular music, but I'm taking a break from mapping its heteronormative lyrics onto my gay life. And in this podcast, I'm going in search of musicians from around the world who mirror and inspire my queer journey. Welcome to In The Key Of Q. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome Carrington Kelso. Carrington's most recent release is Baptize Me in TNT, a wonderful acoustic set of songs which just do his voice the most beautiful justice. And of course, a couple of years before that is the original version of Baptize Me, which is hugely deserving of your attention. Carrington, welcome to In the Key of Q. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. out of me won't you make me whole to the man i thought i'd be don't you let me slip in the grave that's dug for me put that red heart i was actually born in fort wayne indiana the neighborhood or the area that i was born in um, wasn't the best uh and my mother wanted something better for me. She wanted something um, that would allow me an opportunity to grow into whoever I was supposed to be. And so when I was about four, um, she moved down to Georgia first, got things set up, got an apartment, got a job, and then brought me down when I was about five with uh, my grandmother. And uh, the three of us just kind of started trucking along through, you know, grade school, middle school, high school. When I started teaching myself guitar at like 18, um, I really, really wanted to sound like Adele and uh, Ed Sheeran and John Mayer, like these vocalists that I'd looked up to for years and I couldn't do it. Like no matter how I bit my voice or 
softened it. it there was always this um, gravel, this grit that I just couldn't get rid of. And then I finally stopped fighting that that friction and leaned into it. And then things just started to click. There's a, an interesting uh, intersectionality between uh, my queerness and my blackness, uh, especially in the music industry, because anybody that I've looked up to that is queer and black. Now, as I've gotten older, there have been more. Um, Little Nas X is the first uh, that comes to mind that have really um, pushed into the mainstream, um, being both queer and black. You know, growing up, I didn't see anybody doing something like that, really pushing the envelope to say, hey, I'm queer, I'm black, and I'm going to make music that feels good to me. It is not black music. It is not queer music. It is just good music. Um, And that has been something that I've always aspired to. So to see somebody doing that, it's like, oh, um, not only is there money to be made um, in this avenue, but people want to hear it. People are gravitating towards it. And that's because he's living his truth. So hats off to you, little Nas X. Has living your truth been something which you've always managed to do yourself or was it a, a place you had to arrive at? Oh, no, definitely uh, an arrival a journey that um, I'm still on. Um, because one, growing up in a religious household, you know, the fire and brimstone uh, story you hear time and time again, it causes a lot of um self-hate because I realized at a very young age um, I didn't have the vocabulary for it but I knew that I was gay Um, and so it's oh I'll take this to the grave with me nobody ever has to know Um, I'll just be single my entire life and that way like God will love me because I haven't brought shame upon them um, by being queer and um, you know that's no way for anybody to live. Um, and it, it makes you really sick. I dealt with depression and suicidal thoughts and all of that because that seemed easier than just being like, hey, I like boys, like, which is so simple now. Unpacking that and unlearning that uh, really started in high school um, with my best friend. I had like worked up the uh, courage to tell her that I was gay. And when I told her, all she said back to me was, oh, mama knows. And that was it. Like, it it was very much like, bitch, I've been new and I love you like just the same. That really gave me the courage to be like, hey, you can be authentically yourself and the people that are supposed to be in your life will be here and the people who aren't supposed to be in your life, if they leave because of this, then they weren't ever really for you. And then once I got to, you know, sophomore, junior year of college, it was like a wrap. Like, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. And if you leave it, then, you know, fuck you. Put your lips around me, pull the poison from my soul. Check my heart, cause I think it's about to stop. Won't you pull me close? Put that red oven on me. So can you cure this pain? When I call your name, will you come for me? 
I had my first kiss uh, when I was 16 at Disney World um, to uh, an upperclassman that was in uh, chorus with me. Um, and that was like a revelation in itself. Like this is the um, like the stamp. Like I know for sure, like this feeling is something that I want to feel for the rest of my life. And then um, it was also becoming harder to hide. Um, I like to talk with my hands. I have certain mannerisms. Um, and when I'm passionate or I'm telling a story, you know, the gestures just start flying out. And so kids in school were picking up on that. And all of those things like this pressure of, you know, people whispering things under their breath, uh, me having this kind of uh, gay awakening. It was just kind of like, I, I can't take the um, this limbo that I'm in. So it's either going to be you're going to deny it or you're going to walk in it. And I decided to walk in it. One of the themes that has come up multiple times in series one, speaking to artists such as Ferrero Star, to the ISM, to Warren Dumas, is potentially an additional pressure amongst Black Americans that maybe doesn't exist so much with white Americans, and that is a sense of hyper-masculinity amongst the heterosexual male culture. This goes back to the intersectionality comment that I spoke of earlier, um, where there is the queerness, that identity, that culture, those relationships that you're building, and where that meets with your Black identity and that culture and what you are experiencing um, in and around growing up um, in those communities. I know that that anxiety of um, almost having to like butch yourself up to lower your voice and to change your walk so that nobody even questions it. While all kind of comments are being said um, in and around your ear uh, from objectifying women to homophobic comments, and you know you're outnumbered. You can't say anything, um, or you you could, but you know you run the risk of conflict and violence and stuff like that. I'm a firm believer that most people, when they know better, they do better. But it's hard to kind of convince an entire barber shop, like, hey, you know what you just said is kind of offensive, and this is why, and them not say something like shut your sissy ass up or something like that. And it's just like, okay, I just, I won't go back there. Um, I'll take my patronage elsewhere. But what about the nine-year-old Carrington who didn't have a choice at which barbershop I went to and then hearing comments like that, reinforcing that there's something wrong with me uh, because these grown men are, or women, you know, whoever, um, are talking uh, in this manner. What was 15-year-old Carrington like? Uh, very shy, very much a uh, people pleaser, very much um, someone who would dim their own light so that other people didn't feel threatened uh, by it. Uh, almost shrinking himself uh, to fit in spaces uh, that he really didn't belong in, but thought that um, that would be the best for the most people. And so, you know, he would do what he thought was right. And uh, a lot of shame, very shameful. Then look at the incredible journey that he's come on then. I mm -hmm. mean, in 14 years from there. 
Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. It's something you can be incredibly proud of. Talking about it like this, it, it has been, it's nice to, you know, you don't often sit and think like, ooh, 14 years ago, where was I? What was I doing? What was I thinking? Um, and I just told somebody recently, like, I feel like I'm 18, like I'm 21, like, ooh, I don't have life figured out. I'm still kind of on this, you know, I'm throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. But, you know, I'm not 21, I'm not 18 anymore. And I think that um, age is such a beautiful thing in that it provides you with um, that hindsight to know that I'll never go back to that place again. And it's only upward uh, from here. Baby got me feeling blue. No ivy must be translucent or transparent. See you inside me. I know I'm just a sucker, a fool for you. When I look for love, I lost. I look for you. I've seen waves in the clouds. I have a uh, interesting relationship with my father. Um, Him and my mother separated when I was very young, uh, like before we moved to Georgia. And so he wasn't really in my life. And um, when the inkling of uh, my queerness started to kind of like bubble up and it started to become a conversation, uh, he was enraged, uh, to say the least. Um, But I try to have compassion and grace for my father, for uh, other black men women, uh, non-binary people who are working on unpacking that trauma and in doing so, freeing themselves. Like I heard a quote um, a while ago that none of us can be free until we're all free. And um, 2020 was a very uh, emotional and highly charged time uh, for the United States with uh, the unjust murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many other um, innocent Black people. And so when our community can come together and say, those people deserve to live, they didn't deserve to be harmed or murdered uh, just because they're Black, but they can't understand that our trans brothers and sisters, our queer brothers and sisters that are also Black deserve that same grace, there is dissonance uh, within our community. And it's so much that we still need to work on. Um, But I try to be a bridge as often as I can to protect uh, the young queer babies behind me that need that until they can get up on their own two feet and protect themselves, defend themselves, but also to provide understanding when I can to um, our heterosexual brothers and sisters that may not get it. They just don't understand. Um, And that's okay. It's not a crime to not understand. But, um, you know, when that knowledge is presented to you and you still refuse to grow from it, then we, we have an issue. I know you think I'm selfish. My pride has got me helpless. Don't know who I am when I'm loving you.
I'll let you in on uh, a little secret. Um, I am quite often uh, filled with a constant, quiet rage. Um, and it's taken me a very long time to even vocalize that. Being raised by women, uh, Black women specifically, my mother, my grandmother, um, seeing my baby sister grow up um, has given me um, a courage and a peace to um, love a little bit harder uh, when I can. And when I can't, I, I step away until I'm in control again. As passionate as I can be, if I don't touch people, if I can't change minds, then we haven't grown. You're upset, I'm upset, and nothing really changes. So I'm speaking to you from the perspective of a British white man. When mm-hmm. you say things like growing up with black women, can you explain to those people who haven't grown up in that kind of environment, what, what does that mean? What, what, obviously, one doesn't want to be reductive and say, oh, everybody's like this, but what are these people like that you grew up with? Patience. First and foremost, um, patience like you've never seen before, not patience directly towards me, but being able to witness situations where my emotions would have gotten the better of me, where I would have wanted to pop off and seeing the grace of my grandmother being able to uh, bow out respectfully and hold her tongue, being able to make any space you walk into feel like home. Um, my mother has an excellent ability to do that, to feel like calm, just being around her. Black women are the lifeblood of this country, and they get the shortest end of the stick day in and day out. And anytime uh, I have the opportunity to use my platform to uplift them, because I know they need us, they need our voices as black men, as men in general, to say, hey, I see you. I see you're killing it. Um, Let me uplift you. Let me put you on this pedestal that you deserve to be on, even if for a moment, even if this is just a 30 minute uh, podcast, just to say, Black women, I see you. I see your grind. I see your hustle. I see your empathy. And to have known it has made me a better man. I think I'm slightly awed by you because the closest equivalence I have is on my queer journey. And where I face battles there, I don't have the patience that these women do that you talk about. I imagine I don't mm. have the patience that you do. I also know that I have the benefit of being able to be passionate when I'm aggressive. Whereas, of course, I imagine when you get aggressive, you just become an angry black man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easier for me to get aggressive because I probably won't get shot. Right. Black Lives Matter as a movement has kind of held this very dirty mirror up to say, you know, if you refuse to acknowledge our existence as whole beings that deserve life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, as it states in the Constitution, then we will do what is necessary to remind you that we belong here. The United States starts at a very young age teaching us this blind patriotism that causes people to fear diversity. Um, 
And that fear causes us to be very ignorant to not only what is going on around the world, but also to what's going on like in our own streets, in our own neighborhoods. I had a friend tell me um, she wasn't aware of racism until like her senior year of high school, which is like 18, 19 years old. And I was aware of it at six, seven. Um, And so that privilege of not teaching um, our kids to be citizens of the world, to acknowledge Yes, we are different. Yes, we are different colors. And that's beautiful. Let's talk about this culture. Let's talk about this culture. Let's learn from these atrocities so that we can raise children that are better suited for the world we're heading to, not the world that we were in. identity was almost something that I was taught to shame or or be ashamed of um, at a young age. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white area, going to predominantly white schools, and um, I did exceptional in um, all of my schooling. And so I was often put in higher advanced or honors classes, and you would see less and less people of color. so I'd be the only black kid uh, and that it wasn't something that was a problem for me, but um, people would say, you know, you're an Oreo, black on the outside, white on the inside. You speak so white. This is my white peers um, in school um, where, you know, you spend eight, nine hours a day um, around these kids going to birthday parties, playing video games, sleepovers. And so it was these subtle jabs, um, people thinking they're cool with me, so they're calling me the N-word, and me not having the vocabulary or the um, self-courage to kind of stand up and be like, I don't like this, this makes me feel uncomfortable. And when I got to college um, was the first time I had really had a centralized group of Black friends and peers, some of the most um, culturally rich Black people that I had ever been around. And it was really like a mirror for me in a sense that I had never seen that part of myself before. And it was reflected on me. And there was such pride uh, going places with them, being around them, uh, our vernacular that Of course, you get it in the household, but it's different to get it in the world. And something just clicked 
uh, our culture is lit, uh, the way we speak, our music is lit. And I want to lean into this even more. And so now as uh, an adult, not only do I nip the things in the bud that I grew up hearing that were inappropriate, um, I demand uh, a respect around me and around the people that look like me. I don't have to get loud. I don't have to get angry. I just ask a question, like unpack that for me, walk me through this. And they see the hole uh, in their logic and then it's a done deal. Carrington, we've had a, a number of guests on the show talk about depression that they've suffered through shame or through all sorts of reasons uh, and suicide ideology being something that is cropping up multiple times. Um, I'm very keen in this podcast to de-shame these subjects and to not allow people to feel like it's something they can't talk about. And before I go on, just to say that I will be providing, as I always do when these subjects come up, support links in, in the show notes. Mm. Um, could you share with us your, your experiences in this area and also what your exit strategy was? Um, so it probably started, um, young, like once I realized, you know, eight, nine, that, Ooh, there's something different about me, wrong about me, um, quote unquote. And I had this inkling, uh, that it might be queerness. It might be gayness. And, you know, you're taught to turn to this, um, all knowing being that is supposedly all love, but also has stipulations. Um, it created this whirlwind uh, kind of in my head about, um, you know, if I even think these things or if I feel these things or if I go down this rabbit hole, thoughts that I wasn't even consciously like as a child, I wasn't lusting after men that wasn't. And that's what I think people don't understand um, about queerness. Just like when you say like little Johnny has a crush on little Susie when they're five, it is not about them having sex. It's literally a crush. It, that is what it is. But I feel like queerness and gayness um, is often vilified um, and they put these um, over-sexualized standards on even queer children, let alone queer adults. Um, and so all of that, I was very aware of at a, as a young child. And um, the initial response to all of that, that uh, shame, the unhappiness uh, was eating. Uh, I turned to food um, and I was a very hefty child. Um, but it was something that brought me comfort um, and in turn, turn the shame in itself because then I got picked on for my weight and, um, like I couldn't claw my way out. So I just got quiet every day, waking up with this anxiety of like, if I take a step too far this way, or if I say something like this, or if I, uh, you know, look at a person for too long, is somebody going to think that I'm gay? And when you're young, you think that people finding out will be the end of your life. Like you'll just die. 
They say hey, all is fair in love and war But you'll never believe till you find a love worth fighting for Beautiful, wild, unconditional and free And baby when it rains the sun still shines when you're with me as cliche as you know it may sound, it was music um, that pulled me out of that space. Um, seeing people perform live, whether it was just like friends and stuff like that, or going to full-blown concerts uh, as I got a bit older, was like otherworldly is, is the best way that I could put it. And once I got a taste of it, um, I really didn't care about what people thought um, about my identity or um, my blackness, even. You could have it all, just promise me one thing. Take me in your arms and fix these broken wings. What is it about music that speaks to you out of all the art forms that you could have chosen? It has been uh, a journal, a friend, a mirror. Cause sometimes, um, and you know, if any artists are listening, you know the zone, the special space you get into um, where it seems like your body, your mind is on autopilot. And then you look up, you know, a few hours later, a few minutes later, and there's something in front of you that you don't quite know how you've created um, like magic. And that is something that is um, a high that you can't really explain unless you've done it. And once you've tasted it, there is nothing that will satiate you like that. Linking that to my blackness and my queerness um, and having so much of society put shackles on me that I never took on myself, but these ideals are kind of placed upon you slowly at first. And before you know it, there is uh, a brick house around you that you feel like you can't break out of. Music was the escape for me. Music was the closest thing to freedom, the closest thing to love um, that I had ever felt. And so I had to chase that. Hey guys, dating is so hard at the best of times, but if you're like me and didn't go on your first date until you were in your mid-twenties, it's even harder. So I decided to start a podcast called Desperately Seeking, and it's my journey to find my first boyfriend. I go on a different date every episode, have a different friend on to give me advice, what I've done wrong, what I've done right, and where I can improve in the future to figure out why guys are fleeing from me. So that's Desperately Seeking. It's available everywhere. Go give it a listen. You can't see what I can see.
I feel like there is this, and I can only speak for the United States uh, media, but I feel like there is this belief that um, white gay is um, non-threatening to American ideology. If we do get a, a mixed couple, a mixed gay couple, it's like black and white, but you would never see like a black and Mexican couple or um uh, Mexican and Indian couple. Um, white gay is the only digestible in the eyes of, you know, Hollywood or the powers that be. Um, and so that trickles down into the music industry where they'll call us to the table, take our ideas and then push out, push us out of the back door. You see, you see this is how I start to get angry. <laughs> this is why I need to be, I need to be more Carrington. But the beautiful thing about that passion, Dan, is that um, you have done something about it. This is one brick. But if a hundred of Dan's lay one brick, we have a whole wall. And eventually we'll have a house and eventually we'll have a street and eventually we'll have a neighborhood. But taking that first step to lay the brick is the most important. And that is what I, I pray of little Nas X, that he sees the the attention and power that he's garnered and he uses it to reach back to pull even if it's just one artist forward and they reach back to pull another artist forward until we are on the same ground and i'm a shell of who you've seen see you didn't know dear that i've got these scars here that wrap like a chain around my neck if your 15-year-old self were to look at what you were doing, what do you think he would think? Uh, he'd probably say, holy shit. Uh, I can't believe you, you know, put all our business, you know, out on the interwebs like this. Um, I can't believe, you know, you've had the courage to uh, sing about what you've chosen to sing about, let alone bring it to life. Um, you know, ideas are one thing, but bringing them to life is something completely different. And um, I think he'd be proud. I think he'd be blown away by what we've accomplished. Um, and that it would let him breathe a sigh of relief um, that we, we did what we said we were going to do. Um, I think that a lot of us get afraid um, of our dreams at a young age. We're talked about we talk about safety and security. And uh, like you said a little earlier, the arts are not the most uh, safe career, but uh, it's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. And so if my 15 year old self uh, saw me living this out and getting better every day and releasing music that is actually very good, um, I think he'd be blown away. Would he recognize himself? I don't think so. I don't think that he could have pictured um, what we have uh, evolved into, what we are evolving into. Uh, I feel like I am constantly evolving. And I don't think that at 15, I could have imagined, uh, you know, where I am today, tattoos, piercings, all that fun stuff. So Carrington, for those of our listeners who, much to the 
own fault and silliness haven't been listening to your music thus far, if they could listen to one song of yours that would seduce them into the whole Carrington Kelso sound and catalogue, what song would you recommend they go to? One song that encompasses the Carrington sound. Um, I'm going to say Eden. And um, it's one of the newer tracks uh, as of uh, 2021. Um, it was the first single I released this year. And it's the first song that I wrote, produced, and recorded uh, all on my own. So um, I feel like that is the best um, to like really get a taste of uh, sonically where I'm at right now and where I'm going. Um, and hopefully that encourages you to listen to the uh, the rest of the catalog because there are definitely um, some gems in there that I hold near and dear. Just ain't the truth. I'm trying to get back to my roots. Trying to shake this pain to lose. Oh, it feels like I've been lost for days. Lost in this unknown. Just trying to rebuild my own throne. I just need to get right at home. Carrington Kelso, thank you so much for coming on and speaking so eloquently and honestly and openly here at In The Key of Q. You've been a really wonderful guest to have on. Thank you. You've been an amazing host and make it so easy. Like, this is so conversational and I love it. I was a little stressed when uh, when we decided we were going to do this, but I felt so at ease. So thank you. Just ain't the truth. I'm trying to get back to my roots. Trying to shake this pain to lose. Oh, it feels like I've been lost for days. Lost in this unknown. Just trying to rebuild my own throne. I just need to get right at home. Many thanks for listening to this episode of In the Key of Q. Check links in the show notes if you are affected by any of the issues raised in this episode. And reach out to me on social media or by email using the address podcast at inthekeyofq.com. It'll be great to hear from you. And please don't forget to rate and review. It really helps others to find the show. To help keep this podcast in production, please visit patreon.com slash inthekeyofq. Our opening music is by Paulie Nidu at unstoppablemonsters.com. Many thanks to Murray Lang and Kajun Kantha for their help on this episode. I'm Dan Hall, recording at Pup Media Consultancy, and this is In the Key of Q. See you next Tuesday. 